0: Today is VE Day, the, the newly crowned Queen waves from the belt Eagle has landed. Apollo 11 has tearing down the Berlin Wall. Since
1: 1929, the Monks Investment Trust's mission has been to help investors grow their wealth. We aim to do this today by taking a three-dimensional approach to growth. Cyclical growth, rapid growth, and steady growth.
0: The World Wide the Web. Wall Street is in turmoil
1: as stocks crack. The Monks Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Capital at risk. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Advice Show. I'm Zach, a reporter at New Model Advisor, and welcome to the latest mo- monthly roundup. Joining me today is data reporter Alicia Hagopian and senior investments reporter Nicola Blackburn.
2: Hello. Hello.
1: Guys, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing?
2: We're
0: doing great, Zach. Um, how are you doing? Where have you just been?
1: Uh, I have just come from the Labour conference, um, which has been extremely exciting um we've had uh, a fair few events and conferences on i think since we last spoke um the csi had a conference the other Mm -hmm. week we also had the new model advisor investment retreat so thank you to everyone who attended that but yeah the labor conference was really interesting guys um i mean we had the conservative conference the week before but we sent well we sent me to the labor conference this time around um it was super interesting extremely fun i mean You've got the sense of a party very much preparing for power. Of course, they are urging caution and whatever, but the facts are that they are leading in the polls quite considerably. Um, And yeah, they spoke a lot about the economic situation that they expect to inherit, basically. Um, So sort of tampering down expectations, really. Um, The main two things really economically um, from the Labour conference were the lifetime pensions allowance, which they've pledged to reintroduce previously. and rumors around conservatives scrapping inheritance tax. Um, And I'm sure we'll get into those, but a couple of words on the conference. I mean, yeah, unfunded tax cuts was mentioned quite a lot, a reference to Liz Truss, of course, And there was a massive emphasis on a fully costed manifesto coming up. It was quite interesting because the so when you go to the Labour conference, they send you a a massive program, like a really thick book, which I'm led to understand is much thicker and much bigger than any uh, previous conference program. Mm -hmm. The reason being is because the policies are such a blank canvas um, and everybody's there trying to shape policy. So, I mean, going there, there were all sorts of societies and, you know, fun. Fun fairs and whatever. Um, sort of like at university when all the societies try and get you to join, right? Because you're an IE fresher. Um, so yeah, you got a sense of a blank canvas. And to be honest, Keir Starmer's speech did give off that effect for me. Um, of He spoke a lot about the possibilities and the situation we're going to inherit. Um, and, and he spoke about some specific policies, but to be honest, he didn't really, beyond the house building project, um, and um, you know GMB Energy, the energy company they'd like to create. There wasn't massive amounts of specifics on economic policy. Um, and I think the reason for that is because as they kept repeatedly saying at the conference, the situation they inherit will be quite bleak economically. There were conservative plans rumored um, to scrap inheritance tax. Um, now we don't know if this will go ahead. These are very much rumors. Um, they've denied it since, and Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has explicitly said it would be virtually impossible. Um, for any tax cuts to be enacted, particularly when, of course, their priorities are getting inflation down uh, due to the cost of living crisis. Um, But yeah, it's very interesting that this is being uh, rumoured. If it it is the case, it would be, of course, just a general election push of needing something exciting economically to really get, really push those polls back into a conservative, into conservative favour. The lifetime allowance for pensions, um, removal, of course, by the Conservatives was quite significant. And Labour have previously pledged to reintroduce this. Um, of course, this would be, you know, reintroducing a tax on the wealthy in many people's eyes. Um, so it's traditional Labour sort of heartland, really. Um, but recently they've been very quiet on that and I put out a story um, just the other day about how since Rachel Reeves pledged that back in March uh, we haven't actually heard anything from Labour on it which is quite significant given that you know it was quite a loud thing to announce at the time Um, and I think that's reflective of the changing economic situation to be honest and them trying to assess what they can actually pledge um, and what they can't but I gather that um uh, John Schaefer on our wealth manager publication also wrote a, wrote a story on, on the um, inheritance tax.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He did that. Um, and it's a really interesting one for our readers because um, a huge number of their clients will be invested in um, IHT products that are supposed to mitigate that 40 percent, um, you know, tax that they would otherwise have. Mm. Um, John's article, you know, raises the question that if um if the IHT is to be abolished, then will there be a huge run on IHT investment products that could cause liquidity issues that could cause for a huge kind of loss in value in that huge market of AIM listed products. That's actually got a lot, a lot more popular in recent years. Um, And what that, what will that mean for advisors and their clients investments? Um, There's a whole other realm to this, right, which is, you know, yeah, this has been rumoured for a while that a cut to IHT could be, you know, a last ditch attempt on Sunak's part to sort of win favour and for the Conservatives. But advisors, they have to advise on certainties. They can't advise on, you know, a a possible um, tax, like change to tax policy um, because (laughs) their job would be very complicated if they did that. So this is this is creating complications for them, um, in several ways. And that's what John's piece looked at for advisors and wealth managers. I think as well, um, you know, John, John talked to some, uh, product providers who, you know, one of whom sort of argued that this was unlikely to happen or it wasn't something that they were looking at yet. I think this raises a broader question for the advice market of you know, are they going to use these products as much going forward? Because governments can always tinker with tax rules. Mm. Um, So definitely read John's piece.
1: One of the things as well from the Labour conference they were desperate in repeating was their line on CEOs and senior business leaders want stability. Um, And they don't. One of the things they criticised the Conservatives for was the swapping of ministers, the hiring and firing of, of the cabinet um, repeatedly. And they mm. they argued that Labour would be better placed because we're going to be, they're very much presenting themselves as this stable force. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting.
0: I think it's interesting as well. I mean, from the topics that both of you have brought up of that at the end of the day, it's not as simple as this, but definitely inheritance tax, and also the lifetime allowance are being used as a bargaining chip on both sides in a way. Mm. So it's really difficult to say what will actually happen. And I think it is something that our advisors should maybe, you know, mentally start preparing for both, but should definitely hold off on making any sharp decisions mm. or, you know, and definitely calming down their clients because mm. it must be difficult as a client seeing these changes, say you're approaching retirement in the next two years, you're thinking, is all my retirement plan about to be changed? But at yeah. the same time, you really can't say that for sure because I don't think either government has a serious intention to make those changes immediately. I think it, either way, it would be maybe a slow process. Um, and another thing that you mentioned, Zach, is about how at the Labour conference there was not actually that many. We're not actually that many economic themes discussed. And I think that that's something that we also saw at the Conservative conference that there were a few topics that were notably not really on the table. Um, so it's really hard to say until the election actually happens, Mm. what treasury changes will happen. So I think it, it, you know, we shouldn't sort of play the game of predicting maybe.
1: Yes. Um, well, I mean, of course they were very happy to talk about, um, the economy in broad terms, in terms of, you know, in terms of jobs, in terms of, um, in terms of rebuilding homes and things like that. Um, but of course, for advisors, yes, for things that affect advisors, it was much less um, much less specific. Um, I mean you know I went to a couple of couple of talks as well where the FCA were there and they were mentioning some of the work they've been doing as well um, on the advice guidance boundary um, and together with 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 shadow economic ministers talking about how seriously they're taking their work in terms of improving regulation uh, and, and their work in being an outcomes focused regulator. I mean, they've been really busy this last month, right?
0: Yeah, the FCA has been really busy in the past few months since we last spoke. Um, we were just talking earlier about how there's been a lot of fines and bans that have come through. Um, yeah. Some of those from, you know, really legacy things from a few years ago actually yeah um, some of the like
2: biggest uh, british deal fines or um, sort of decision notices that they've issued have come out within the past few months um, we've seen a couple so yeah so the
0: regulator one. is definitely very much getting back into the swing of things following a more quiet period during summer i'd say mm. um and on what you were mentioning the advice guidance boundary um i was also at the pimp for conference earlier this month or last month, um, where Lucy Dean from the FCA really sort of hammered down on that point about advice guidance and said that the paper could lead to a wholesale restructuring of the regulation around advice. So I think that's really something to look out for, especially because we're in such a changing landscape at the moment. I mean, you know, we've heard a lot about the idea of finfluencers and mm. online things that are sort of sold as advice but aren't really advice. And I think the regulator is very aware of the fact that it needs to catch up mm. with the level of maybe fraud that is out there. Yeah. And it, uh, on a similar note, also <clears throat> the FCA cracked down on a few crypto asset uh, firms recently, I think I saw. And yeah. so I think, you know, the is very much going into the 21st century, not that it already wasn't, but I think understanding that Things might be moving at a faster pace than they can keep up with.
2: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: I do recall as well the conference last month, the FCA very much talking about data and the amount they're gathering, um, the analysis that's required. Um, And, you know, on that, we're hearing from a lot of advice firms um, about the information requests they're getting from the FCA. These are um, of a surprising scale, even to them. Um, so that they're asking for a lot more information, to put it bluntly, but also over a longer time period. So, um, you know, your standard advice firm might expect the call from the FCA every once in a while of, can you give us everything in the last six months? Be it on client files, on fee charges, on, um, on whatever really, um, but n- what I'm hearing increasingly is that those are getting expanded to two years, one year, two years. Mm. Now it's slightly unclear at the moment whether these are spot checks on advice firms, just picking them at random, um, or whether it's something that the FCA has noticed and thought we need to dig deeper Because obviously you can't, the FCA can't be, you know, asking every single advice firm for this. It's just not feasible. However, it does raise questions, of course, that of a massive amount of data gathered. Will they be able to process this information effectively? Um, And will every advice firm be able to provide it? You know, um, I've heard a lot of cases where advice firms have been able to provide it, which is fantastic. Um, But of course, it raises questions that, you know, is the FCA going to ask a small business? Um, to provide this, uh, this amount of data and would the small p- business be able to provide it in time? And
2: I think like, you know, it's for advice businesses, it's understandably really tricky to um, keep up with what is widely accepted as like a tightening of regulation that we've seen over the past years that's affected advice businesses. But if you look at this from a glass half full perspective, hopefully this, the FCA is kind of increasingly kind of um, just increasing requirements from advice firms the, the increase of just rules for them will actually provide an opportunity for them to hopefully become a bit more confident in their offering and provide clearer guidelines for what they do offer. I think like going back to what you were saying before about um, the advice guidance boundary becoming a, you know, a, a bigger theme, um, like will that open up, I don't know what you guys think, but will that open up more opportunities for advice businesses to provide a guidance offering? As well as mm, their advice really offering, um, and if there are clearer rules on what guidance is, hopefully that will help them.
1: Definitely. Well, I've, I've certainly heard from sort of investment platforms and th- those mm-hmm. kinds of people that they would like to provide more, but mm. they don't just don't know if they can because it will be classified into that advice yeah. section. Um, right. It's too soon, isn't it? Yeah, yes. it's too early. And, and and in terms of filling that advice gap, and in terms of getting more people. Um, receiving just financial help, really, whether you term that as regulated advice, yeah, um, that's why the FCA is so determined to get this boundary right, so yeah. more people can get financial help that they need.
2: And there are, there are, we've heard from advice businesses that we speak to, advice firms, that they're offering products onto the market that deliver some kind of like simplified advice. Um, we profiled a advisor who started up his own business last week, and he said that. Um, in future, he would like to, you know, develop a kind of app that would help with the advice process. You know, there's opportunities for things like that. He's got a small new IFA at the moment, and he's already thinking about that as within the realms of possibility. So it's, you know, some exciting stuff. I think it's interesting because all these things that we're talking about—advice guidance um, and
0: also consumer duty and data reporting requirements—so Next Wealth just came out with a. A really in-depth and sort of widespread report about the advice industry.
2: The consultancy?
0: Yes, the consultancy network next wealth. Um and I think that a really key point from the report is so consumer duty obviously forced firms to reassess their value for money offering. Um now we're about what three months in from it, two, three months. Mm. And actually the report shows that for the first time in at least five years, the average advice fee has dropped from 2% to 1.75%. And I think that's a real shift actually, and shows that whether firms will stick with that or not, consumer duty has made an impact already, and that firms have been preparing for Mm. the sort of regulator Mm -hmm. scrutiny. But I think that something that the report discusses, which is very important, is that the average advice fee has dropped across the UK, but costs are not down really at all. And Heather Hopkins said that, you know, the cost of compliance um, and also the cost of different technologies and data reporting have actually meant that even if it's just temporarily cost for advisors running a business might be going up, but the cost of advice is going down. So it really sort of begs the question of how are advisors going to be able to run their businesses? And the answer is that of course some of them will, but some of them might be squeezed out by this period of change. Um, and as a result, there has been an increase in advisors looking to sell, but also advisors looking to sell in the next 18 months. And according to the survey, 8% of advisors weren't just looking to sell, but look, looking to exit the market entirely, which I think is a really, really interesting figure Mm -hmm. because it's sort of some advisors, not to say all advisors, but some advisors thinking they're just going to throw the towel in and walk away from advice because it's not necessarily viable option for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting phenomenon that we might be seeing in the next few years. I want to know what what you guys think of that, whether that's some conversations that you've been having with Mm. advisors.
2: Not about advisors leaving, to be honest, but in in tandem with this, we are seeing an increase in like diversity and things like fee models and, and you know, business models that new um, advisors are bringing to the market. So some advisors are, f- are finding a way around it. Having said that, you know, so for example, we hear a lot about the subscription fee model. A lot of those businesses are in their first few months, first few few years of mm-hmm. being operational. So I think the success of them long term remains to be seen. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting problem, Alicia. On that note, there definitely has been a lot of
0: consolidation in the last few years. Um, because you know, there are some people who believe that scale is the way to make an advisor business profitable. Um, but that acquisition, that consolidation tended to be at maybe a mid range of the market. But so, for example, a sale that we saw recently was Jill Thomas selling her advice firm Future Life Mm. Wealth Management to the private equity-backed consolidator Amber River. And was Um, that like a kind of mid-sized firm? This is, it was a 330M business and also a top 100 company. Um, So a top tier advisor. And she was looking to sell her business, but she had, you know, some, according to her, some very high requirements for who would be a good partner. And I think it's interesting to see that because that is a mm-hmm. sort of upscale business, but looking to exit under these market conditions. Um, and another interesting thing about that is you have a private equity backed consolidator, which doesn't really have a big media presence, doesn't publish a lot about its, its acquisitions, but actually we've been running our private equity database, um, Zach and I. And in the, since the last time we ran the report, which was earlier this year, um, the firm has already added another 2 billion of assets under advice. Mm. So that's an interesting one to look out for because actually the private ac- equity backed consolidators are making quite a lot of moves and you might not be hearing about them. But, mm. you know, within a year or so, it might be a name that we hear a lot of of amber river or some of their other competitors so i think there actually might be a trend to towards a bit more consolidation yeah. following consumer duty we might see a bit of a influx of that but that doesn't mean that you know the traditional smaller ifa model is going to be wiped out we just might see a shrinking of the market a little bit
2: yeah on um, what you said before about um jill thomas having some you know really specific kind of requirements you know obviously for the business that was going to buy her business is really interesting because if you if you flip this around and look at it from the perspective of the advisors who are looking for potential consolidators if this is a really hot market in terms of the private equity firms the asset managers who are looking to acquire advice businesses then they can probably afford to be a bit picky and choosy right i mean they can they can kind of court businesses they can um you know decide what they want and and Often in this market, I've heard that if if your business is approached by a um, interested acquirer, potential acquirer, you know, don't you have a duty to your clients, your um, colleagues at executive level, and you know, if they're there, your shareholders, to consider the benefits to those shareholders of an acquisition? Like there's there's opportunity here for advisors, and um, we're uh we we may come on to this but we're reviewing um entries to our top 100 advice firm list for 2023 at the moment a lot of them have said that their succession plan you know when it comes to be will be about consolidation and one of you made the point before i think that if you're an advisor who is clocking that as what will happen in future but you're not planning on retiring for 10 20 years you have a lot of time to court the market and see who the big players are out there that um you know, you think look good. That's a really good point. And there definitely are a lot of options out there at the
0: moment. Mm. You know, we probably at some point will see consolidation within between the consolidators. But right now, mm-hmm. there are definitely a lot of options. And I think if you're a more market advice firm, you or smaller IFA, you should definitely be considering those options. And yeah. I mean, lots of different surveys have showed that actually at least half and maybe even the majority of IFAs in the UK have been a- approached about, um, acquiring their business in the last year. So mm. that, you know, people okay. are out there people are looking for your business in yeah. most cases. Um, well that actually, you know, brings to mind another story of the merger between succession and, and Aviva. Yeah. So that's on a, on a much larger scale than the things that we've been talking about.
2: Yeah. Uh, this, uh, acquisition happened formally just over a year ago, and it was a huge bit of news. Um, Succession, a big national advice firm, Aviva, huge insurer, huge asset manager that people all know, um, advisors know very well. Um, and we wrote an analysis piece looking at the success of that acquisition one year on. Um, and this acquisition is a really interesting case study for. Um, what can go well and what cannot go so well when you know an acquisition of this scale happens. Um, so what was kind of raised from it? I mean, the first thing is you know, the point that from an acquisition of scale, you're always going to have some cultural clashes. Um, we've seen 50 advisors exit succession um, over the past year. Um, a big chunk of those were advisors that were retiring. And so it might have been attrition that Aviva Mm. expected, but some of them um, decided to go to other firms. These were top earning um, advisors at Succession who would have had huge client bases. So you might automatically think, right, what a blow for Aviva. Um, That's a lot of clients and and top advisors lost. Um, But on the flip side, you know, Succession have acquired other advice firms since then. Um, which means they would have brought in new clients and new advisors. For Aviva, uh, that probably means that in terms of the profit hit and everything, that balances out. So from Aviva's perspective, that might not matter. So the question for Aviva is, is it still meeting its meeting its targets that it expected to meet, went before it acquired succession? Um, potentially, um, the acquisition has led to a lot more flows onto Aviva's platform. Um, at the same time, uh, Succession hasn't hit and doesn't expect to hit its EBITDA targets for 2022 and 2023. Um, It was actually going to give a lot of its planners bonuses if it did. Um, But despite it doing that, it is still going to give its planners those bonuses. These acquisitions, you know, they're never smooth sailing.
1: Do you think that... um you know, like you said, a a lot of succession advisors leaving. Do you think Aviva might have actually priced that in when they bought the firm?
2: Great question. I think you would assume that for the advisors that were going to retire, Mm. yes, for the ones that decided to leave in the year preceding because they were always promised share payouts at the time of acquisition. Maybe not, but you would think that a consolidator would do their due diligence and realize that if a lot of, Top shareholder advisors are going to receive those long-awaited payouts at the point of an acquisition. You know that was in the contract, like at yeah. the point of sale. Yeah, they might have anticipated that, but that's a lot of advisor to leave yeah. in a short period of time. Yeah, yeah.
1: And 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 in terms of you know any sort of cultural issues that may have arisen, um, you know we've seen I think wealth manager had a, a massive piece out last month mm. about um, Evelyn Partners and the struggles there of a, of a merger. Um, and of some potential cultural difficulties arising there I just wanted to know you followed succession for a while um you know how how, how much um, attention do you think is given to to the culture of firms fitting um of course that sounds like a stupid question because every you know every press release I read from an acquisition says we're looking for a good cultural fit um but of course we're talking about a lot of, a lot of money at play here so there's various different things that come to the table mm. I just wondered what your thoughts were on those fits and, you know, how they can be prevented.
2: I think it's incredibly important, incredibly important, um, from a strategic business perspective. Um, in Succession's case, their top shareholder advisors who had the largest client banks and were bringing in, you know, they were the top fee owners bringing in the most money from those large client banks. Mm. A lot of them have left. Now, We haven't spoken to all those advisors, so we are not jumping to conclusions that that is all about. They're not being a cultural fit, but you know, if an advisor is unhappy, they're going to leave. Mm. So, and if those advisors are the top advisors that are most valuable to the business, then that can be a serious hit to the bottom line. Now, Succession has the backing of a huge insurer now. It's making acquisitions. Um, That's going to help it if it, if it is hit with such a hit, but. You know, if you're a mid-sized advice firm and you're independent, and there's a cultural shift and that happens, that's going to have huge consequences for your business. So I really don't think the the importance can be understated. Um, and you know, there are there are events that can cause a lot of uh, kind of cause a cultural drift i mean succession a big event that happened to them in the past year was they had a big cyber attack mm. um and there has since been a kind of a group claim or, or there's a there's a, a, a claims company that is um has called out to people affected by that both advisors and clients and said get in contact if you are really worried about the impact of this um and, you know, that's, that's, that's huge for Succession. Um, succession also, following the cyber attack, um, its chief technology officer left. So uh, again, another senior exec, you know, big mistake and, and, and then they've departed. So, you know, yeah, these things, you know, people don't forget about them.
0: Mm. That You know, another major event that happened recently or perhaps a future major event is rumours that Viva will be put up for sale. Mm. How do you think? I mean, there's a few questions about that. But since we're talking about succession, how do you think that that could it, it sort of resonate within successions advisors? Yeah. Or among successions y- advisors.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it could go one of two ways. If the whole business is sold, which are, which I've been speaking to a few people, we think that is unlikely. Probably less of an impact. If Aviva is split up and a proportion of the business is is sold that could have more of an impact if it's life and pensions which covers advice it covers the wealth business and that's sold off that will surely have kind of a ripple effect down into the the entities within aviva um if aviva sold off let's say its insurance business its protection business that would give it more energy more resources to hone in on its um on its remaining businesses like life and pensions like aviva investors which provides the funds and investment solutions so that you'd think would have positive benefits for its advice arm. Um, something to add about Aviva is that in previous years, they have done a huge kind of consolidation of their most profitable, their, their like core businesses. They've sold off eight um, global businesses um, in various regions. I think, you know, Hong Kong was one, um, Poland was another, and, um, so they've they've made moves to like focus on their most successful businesses. So they're no strangers to doing that. And as I said before, when we were discussing advice businesses, if um, an offer has come on the table, if an acquirer that's interested has approached them, they have a duty to shareholders, to their clients, to their investors to consider those offers. So watch this space, I'd say.
1: That sounds like a great note to end on. Um, thank you both so much for joining me. You've been listening to The Advice Show with myself, fellow reporter Alicia Hagopian, and senior investments reporter Nicola Blackburn. For any questions, please feel free to tweet us at newmodeladvisor or email us at nmateam at citywire.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.
0: Since
1: 1929. The Monks Investment Trust's mission has been to help investors grow their wealth. We aim to do this today by taking a three-dimensional approach to growth. Cyclical growth, rapid growth, and steady growth.
0: The World Wide Web. Wall Street is in turmoil as stocks crash. The
1: Monks Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Capital at risk.